The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 144 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that my opinions expressed at the show are my own and not my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sense of intelligence that I've been privileged to result of my current employment and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So as usual, it's nonstop in the cybersecurity world here. And uh, we got another great show for you this evening. Of course, we deliver every week, week after week after week. And we're going to be talking about re-envisioning the perceptions and visions around data security and data privacy. And who better to do this than the president and CEO of Spirion, Mr. Kevin Coppins. Right? So as the CEO of Spirion, Kevin wakes up every day on a mission to protect what he thinks matters most to you. And I agree with him. As a consumer, when you're out there as a consumer, it's your sensitive personal data. It's your personal data that you're putting out there over and over again with all these organizations. That's what really means uh, a lot to a lot of folks out there. They see this on the TV all the time. And every time it's just one big uh, breach after another. And they sort of get numb to it sometimes. And we're going to talk a little bit about that too. But Kevin's backed by a team of passionate data cybersecurity professionals. And uh, he's working tirelessly to re-envision the culture of entire industries. And he's putting privacy where it belongs. And that's at the forefront, something that we talk a lot about on this program. Uh, Kevin can do this because he's got a great track record. He's got a 25-year track record of growth, leadership, and achievement in numerous domains that spans multiple roles in industries. Uh, and additionally, the handle, handling finance and procurement for non-tech giants like Exxon Mobil and, and Bosch and Lam. He served in senior executive positions across the tech space at Novell, Acatel Lucent, Maru Networks, Easy Vista, and NEC. So lots of different, lots of different uh, experience there, which really, as you know, and I talk about all the time, I think helps people tremendously when they go up the ladder, uh, uh, in, especially in the corporate world and in the entrepreneurial world. It's the same. It's the exact same thing. When you have that kind of depth and breadth of experience, it really, really helps you to thrive at the helm. And that's what he's done over at Spirion. Spirion is a company whose data discovery and classification solutions have empowered the data privacy, security, and compliance strategies of thousands of organizations worldwide. 
So Kevin's determined to help C-suite execs understand the importance of minimizing their sensitive data footprint and preventing data breaches, not only to reduce the risk and the cost and the reputational damage of successful cyber attacks, and of course the regulatory violations, but because it's the right thing to do. We talk about that all the time as well, doing the right thing for the right reasons all the time, and that's why we thought Kevin would be a great tier one guest on this show. So he's well-educated. He's got a bachelor's, uh, a bachelor's of science degree in marketing from Penn State University. He's also got an MBA from Loyola University in New Orleans, and he's got a certificate of professional development from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Business School. So it's time to welcome to the show the president and CEO of Spirion, Mr. Kevin Coppins. Kevin, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Hey, good to be here. Thanks. Hey, it's great to have you. Thanks for taking the time out to speak with us. I mean, you're a data security guy. In your experience, what have some of the traditional approaches to data security been? Uh, it's been more device-centric than data-centric. So the way you protect the data is you protect the devices, you protect the perimeter, and then you don't worry as much about the data because you've either encrypted it or you've protected it in other ways. So the uh, traditional approaches are focus on the perimeter or focus on the device, and the data will then magically be secure. So this is interesting because, like anything in technology, uh, things change rather quickly, right? And much quicker than any other sort of verticals. Do these approaches to data security still work? They're, they're still important. I don't want to say they're not important, but at the same time, if you uh, just pick up any newspaper, you'll see that pretty much anybody can be breached at any point in time. And when you think about protecting a device, what device is the cloud on exactly? Uh, we don't know. <laughs> so um, being able to protect the device or the perimeter when you don't have a perimeter anymore and you don't know how much data you actually have, you have, to, you have to start with the data and being able to put context to the data that's important versus the data that's not. So while still important, um, are they as effective as they used to be? No. So how important is it to have a defense and death posture? And what's made these more traditional approaches less effective as technology has evolved? It's... it's it has to do with data proliferation. So when you look at the scale of what data was 20 years ago versus what it's going to be two years from now, um, there's just, yeah, I ask CISOs all the time, well, how much data do you have? And they scratch their head and they say, I have no idea. So being able to say that you can protect it all when you don't know how much you have or where it all is. So you, you got to kind of rewind and say, what's important to my business? What's not important to my business based on the business that I'm in? And then it starts boiling back down to the data again. So to me, having a device-centric versus a data-centric security posture from either a breadth or a depth standpoint, you're, you're kind of not seeing the forest through the trees. I was actually talking to, uh, to a CFO today, having a similar conversation to just kind of understand, what do you do for a living? I'm like, well, do you leave your most valuable stuff sitting on your kitchen table, assuming that the, the locks in your house are going to keep people out? And the answer is no. Um, you assume that you put locks on the house and you put a security system on the house and you do all that stuff because it's the right stuff to do. But then you also take the most valuable things that you have and you lock them in a safe or you put them someplace out of sight. And the challenge with data security is that you can't really tell what the lunch menu is and what last year's tax returns were for your CEO. So being able to delineate between the two is critical. So does asset management in, in, in the asset inventories still map to the importance of data security these days, even though that traditional approach is important, but not necessarily the way to go about things? As long as you consider data an asset. 
Right. I mean, I, I, there are so many breaches out there. I mean, the cyber hygiene is so important right now. And I'm just thinking that you know, there's still so many people and so many companies out there who just don't have accurate asset inventories. Some of them don't have any inventories at all. Um, hey, it was the, I was reading something just the other day on the breaches of 2019. And it said, may, may we never hear the words unsecured server ever again. <laughs> right, but that right. seemed to be the headline you know some random unsecured server that just happened to have millions of records yeah. it's, it's, you know what I think a lot of it is and this is where um, I think we might differ from some other books I don't think it's always bad people doing bad things I think it's good people trying to do their job in the best way they know how is how data starts going crazy people go up to a system of record and they download a CSV to do the analysis that their boss was asking them to do what they don't recognize is what they just pulled down had social security numbers and it had credit card numbers and it had employee IDs. They just pulled down the whole file. They did the analysis they needed to do. They saved it to an Excel. They shipped it off the email. It then got saved to their hard drive, got replicated up to the cloud, let it be OneDrive or let it be Dropbox. Also got saved in their exchange outbox because they don't delete anything that gets sent. And then they also blind copied themselves to make sure they can see why. Now you've got 15 copies of that same data around it. <laughs> That, that IT sitting back going, everything's secure. It's locked into our system of record. It's like, yeah, well, it was, but not so much anymore. Right, That's the so stuff much. that people just doing the right thing, doing their job. But uh, in the process of doing their job, leave a lot of data laying around. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how many people will email their work home so they can actually, you know, print and do a whole bunch of different things. George, um, that never, ever happens. <laughs> it's just, I mean, crazy. Uh, you know, it's, uh, look, you mentioned the cloud, the cloud's all the rage. You know, how has the cloud transformed data security in your mind? It goes back. It's what the cloud has done is it's allowed data to replicate at a pace that we've never seen before. You used to actually know when you were replicating data, I'm making a copy of this file. Now there's just copies being made ad nauseum and you don't necessarily know where. And people, you know, we, we Dropbox is our standard and this is how we use and we only use Citrix sessions and there's all these things that make people think that they're secure when at the meantime, just to your point, people are finding workarounds so they can get their job done. And to do that, the harder you make it to get at sensitive data, the more apt you are to have somebody do something bad with it because they had to work around how hard it was to get it. That makes sense. Right, right. So uh, that, that's what the cloud has really done is it's just taken that and magnified it times 10. I think there's a lot of security issues that some people don't realize when they uh, move to a transition to the cloud. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people that are really ultra focused on security and have, you know, task forces out and, uh, and, and teams sitting down talking about what are the new risks that are introduced into the environment because of the transition. Has there been some unexpected consequences for companies as they've made the transition to the cloud? Um. Yeah, but I think it's been on both sides. So I think, think there's been some unexpected positives as well as some unexpected negatives, um, especially from a DR standpoint. Um, if you got things in the cloud, disaster recovery becomes a heck of a lot of an easier conversation. It's really been more from the bad side. It's been less about can I control access, but it's been more about what data is there and what data is not there. I know I keep getting back to the data because the, the, data, the data that we're responsible for experience is the most sensitive bits of data that in an individual's case make up I call it the digital version of your true self. Um, that's the data that gets replicated in the cloud or wherever it happens to go ahead and be that often gets forgotten about. I made the example of um, a spreadsheet before, but let's talk about a job application. When you get to the final stages of a job application, you have to fill out an I-9 form, right? And with that I-9 form, what do you have to provide? Two forms of ID. 
and you walk that to your HR office in a secure envelope and you hand that to them, correct? No, you take a picture with your phone and you send it, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And, it, and, it, and it gets zipped off that way or maybe you save it up to a cloud store. So it's the, it's the inadvertent replication of data that people are missing with the cloud because they've got all these processes and flowcharts that say it's secure without really thinking about how people use it and the people use it to back up their data. Yeah. Like taking a picture of your parking space at the airport so you know where you are when you get back. Right? It's the, people get in the habits, right? And, and so, look, I've heard you speak before, and I think many companies think of data security in terms of building higher walls. And when I think of, uh, you know, when I hear you speak, I, I think of uh, minimi- minimizing your attack vector, right? Your attack profile, uh, I should say. And um, what, what, is, what does that look like? And do you advocate for shrinking the target in terms of data security? And like, how does somebody go about doing that? Yeah, so when you talk about attack vectors or threat surface, a lot of times I hear people talk about threat surface and they're almost always talking about devices. Back to that early part of our conversation. What is the, what is the places that of, of my threat surface and how many devices do I have out there that equal that threat surface? So how do I manage those assets? We look at it in terms of data. So what's the threat surface of my data? We'll go back to uh, the simple example of the passport. So how many copies of that passport are there? How many do you really need? Well, you need one. Well, if you have 15, if I shrink it down to one, it's a lot easier to protect the one versus the other 14, some of which might live in that world-famous unsecured server. So when we say shrink the target, understand what's valuable, understand why people are breaking into your house in the first place and the stuff they're looking to steal and make sure you don't have multiple copies of that laying around. So rot data, being able to understand where it is, being able to shrink down to the bare minimum of what you need and then properly securing that. And when I say secure, I think it's important too. We haven't really broached this conversation on privacy yet. Securing from a data security standpoint is locking it down. From a privacy standpoint, it's how is that data being used? So you might still only have one copy of the passport, which is perfectly appropriate, and it might be okay for HR to have access to it. That's perfectly appropriate. But it might not be okay for them to use it to apply for a visa to go to China um, without your permission. So understanding usage when it comes to privacy brings this whole other lens on the overall footprints because you have to understand not just the footprint and who has access, but what it's being used for, which also changes the conversation around the data, the data profile or data threat surface. Okay, folks, we got to transition into a commercial break here, but stick right with us. Lots more to come here on this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's George.Redis at TF7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the president and CEO of Spirion, Mr. Kevin Coppins, whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. 
but it can bankrupt your company. It's internal risk. Insider fraud, ethics violations, and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis. Don't be one of them. The corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the president and CEO of Spirion, Mr. Kevin Coppins. So, Kevin, what makes data compliance so difficult for organizations to navigate? Why is this such a pain for organizations to take care of? Um, two reasons. One is because under say, any company, the, the complexity that exists in any company, 
in terms of how data flows and how it moves is hard to understand. You know, people build workflow processes and everything for years, but that's difficult. But I think the part that makes it even harder is compliance is fluid. Uh, privacy is fluid. So when you say compliance, here's my reg, but now my reg's changed 13 times in the last 12 weeks. And what are they going to enforce and what are they not going to enforce? And that's all up to interpretation. But then the second part of that is, it, what, what does privacy mean to Nancy in accounting versus what does it mean to Joe in sales? Hmm. You have very different people with how they perceive what privacy should be. So you, you map that into compliance with a privacy regulation, and it just gets hard because it's not a hard and fast rule in terms of, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do my NIST security protocol, and I'm in the respond section four. It's just a lot different when it comes to compliance, especially when it comes to data privacy. I think that the regulatory landscape is complex. I think it's very complex. And I think, you know, uh, especially when you have a business that is global and not only national in different states, where they all have a different privacy laws and everything, but when it's global and you're in different regions of the world, it does get very complex and you have to spend a great deal of money to stay regulatory compliant. How has this landscape changed over the last few years in your mind? Not just in my mind, reality in the, I think there's a stat over the past, there's been more privacy regulations in the past four years than in the previous hundred. Wow. Um, another one is, and I don't know if it was a Gartner stat, but 60, as of today, there's, there's 10% of the world's population is covered by a privacy regulation. And within the next three years, 65% will be covered by at least one. You know, just kind of digest that in terms of, and this is people you sell to. This is it's people that are employees. I mean, that magnitude as a company, you got to sit there and say, do I even deal with that, <laughs> or do I yeah. just do I just deal with a fine? I mean, because I don't even know if I can wrap my head around that. Right. It's an, it's risk acceptance, right? Regulatory risk acceptance. It's like any type of risk. And look, I think all regulations are important. I think I'm not going to say you know some are really not important, and some are more important, but. I think some have a bigger impact on your business, on your customers, on your clients. What regulations do you think executives should really be paying attention to that they aren't right now? Uh, CCPA to me is a big one, um, not because it's CCPA, but because I think it's going to be the blueprint for what will either happen nationally or is going to happen across the states. Every state now is trying to regulate something. And another misnomer is that, well, we're in a pandemic, so nobody's going to really pay attention to that stuff. Maybe they're not paying attention now, but there's a look-back period to the moment that that was absolutely passed as law, and anything you are doing with your data um, at that particular time is going to be looked back upon. And if you are negligent about it, the uh, one of my old bosses used to say, there's three kinds of excuses, Kevin. There's good excuses, there's bad excuses, and valid excuses. What do they all have in common, George? <laughs> they're excuses. They're all excuses, exactly. <laughs> So just uh, when I was uh, running sales in Florida um, during the year, we had five hurricanes down here. And I, and I told that boss, I think we're going to miss my forecast this quarter. He's like, Kevin, there's three kinds of excuses in the world. <laughs> it didn't really matter. And when it comes to enforcing privacy regulations, saying that there was a pandemic, so I treated all my customer and employee data uh, secondary or tertiary, I didn't really care. I was just trying to keep people employed. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Might, that might be the right thing to do, but it's not going to get you out of trouble. So in corporate, we always have a saying, do the right thing for the right reasons all the time. And you've been pretty outspoken about this and you talk about the need for companies to do the right thing with customer data from the start. Why is this so hard for organizations to do? Uh, I think it's based on how you phrase the question is because they call it customer data. 
And one of the things that was impressed upon me when I joined the company um, back last year, the, the Spirion dates back to 2001 when the founders started this company. And they started it because they were hell-bent on protecting their personal data. It wasn't them being a customer. Uh, think about it. When a uh, when large company, Acme, gets breached, the headline says, you know, Acme breached. Well, who's the victim of that breach? It's the data that was stolen. Well, whose data is that? It's not customer data. It's not FTEs. It's the person sitting next to you. It's the person living next to you. It's somebody in your family. And being able to personalize it versus saying employees are FTEs and customer data is even some I mean, the GDPR calls it data subject access requests. You got to make it personal because it is personal because I just got a letter in the mail two weeks ago. Florida Orthopedic was breached back in April and my wife had her knee fixed. And guess what? Welcome to another year of identity theft protection, Kevin. Well, that's great. I'll put it in my stack of identity theft protection, yeah. and I'll continue to go ahead and monitor my stuff. I'm the victim of that mm -hmm. stuff, and I think corporate America depersonalizes it, and that's what makes it hard because they're thinking about it and solving a data problem versus something that's very real and very relevant. So you think they think about it in dollars and cents and not really like a data security issue and a, and a customer issue? Yeah, and, and, it, and now with COVID, even an employee issue. I mean, you think about all of the health-related data that's going to be captured on us when we enter a restaurant at least for what they're saying these days. Or if you're going into the workplace, they're taking your temperature. Or maybe they're monitoring the fact that the person living next door to you in a townhouse was diagnosed as positive, so they're going to tell you, you can't work this week. Can they do that? Well, yeah. So what data is actually being gathered and, and putting a personal face to that is the part that I think gets missed because by the time you get up, you're like, well, how much is it going to cost for this security thing? No, what's it going to cost you reputationally? But more important, what is your obligation to your customers, employees to protect their physical well-being? Everybody kind of gets that. Well, their digital well-being has a lot longer footprint than possibly the physical side. Right. What is your opinion on the biggest gaps between data security professionals within an organization and their executive leadership? Executive leadership is in the business. Uh, let's say it's a bakery. They make bread. They sell bread. That's what they do. Security is this is a tax on the business in terms of what the executives think about it as. So how do I limit taxes? Well, I pay people in accounting to make sure my taxes are as low as possible. And they look at security the same way, um, almost as a tax, less insurance, but more as a tax. And it's difficult for security professionals other than saying, look, if we don't do this, we're going to be breached and be on the cover of the, of the New York times or what have you. Going in with those threat tactics is irrelevant to a business person. You got to go in terms of, not just what is ROI, but what's the total cost of risk and how are we make sure that we're minimizing that and now bringing, again, from the privacy side, you got you can have data security for data security sake, but you can't have data privacy without data security. And being able to tie those two together to make it meaningful and make it real, that's the challenge that they have. So there's all kinds of risks that we talk about when it comes to data security. One of the, one of the risks we often speak about is reputation risk and, and brand risk. How does the responsibility of data security factor into building brand trust with customers? And does that trust go away when we have these big breaches? It goes away for a period of time. And I think uh, I mean, the recent uh, goings on with Zoom is a good example. Half the world didn't know what Zoom was. Uh, three weeks later, everybody knew what Zoom was. Three weeks after that, all teachers are being told to get off of Zoom. Right. right. All right. federal agencies are saying it's bad. Now everybody's saying that they responded pretty well and you can use Zoom again, but there's a whole bunch of attorneys suing them. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of, 
it, I mean, it, it all matter over a, a few months period of time. I, I like the, uh, I would share the target story, which is, I think interesting because it's a little less cloak and dagger and a little bit more right in your face than it's the, the woman whose buying patterns are being tracked. And based on the things that she was buying, uh, they could determine that she was pregnant. Um, the challenge was, is she was a younger woman. Her father was getting all of the marketing being sent to her house in the forms of a physical flyer, and it was all for maternity-related stuff. He got upset. He went and called target executives and said, why are you marketing all this stuff to my young daughter? Turns out she was actually pregnant. Um, and they did that just by understanding personal data. Now, if you think about bad guys, they can gather little pieces of personal data from Target, little pieces of personal data from your location. Um, I was listening to a, a podcast on my drive-in today, and they were talking about TikTok. And this woman said, TikTok, I don't care if the Chinese have my data. And, and I was just kind of like, okay. So it's not about the Chinese having that data. It's about putting all those pieces together and recognizing that you can tell a heck of a lot about a person by pulling data from just four or five different sources. And that's what I think people don't really grasp. They just think they're giving away their, you know, their, their email address. And in exchange for that, they're going to get to watch videos on TikTok. They, they, don't, they don't put the value of the personal data they're giving to understand really what kind of privacy they're exposing. Yeah, it's interesting if you want to put your Instagram uh, you know, profile on TikTok, you got to give them your password to your Instagram account. I mean, I don't really understand that. I mean, if you don't have to do that with Facebook or any other uh, social media. It's just really weird uh, the way they operate. Um, so look, I think you, you, you say something interesting. Like, I think a lot of these uh, customers, consumers, they're just numb to this stuff. They see it on the news every day. It's just another uh, breach, you know, all kinds of information out there. Um, it, what do you think they think about their personal data right now as it relates to the companies they engage with? You just gave a great example, but and in general across the board. They don't associate, they need to look at it as currency. How, how much am I willing to share with you based on how much am I getting in return? Almost like any other relationship would you have. You know, how much am I willing to invest in this relationship based on what I get in return? And the example, um, one of the guys that works on my team likes to use is, if you, you remember going to the ice cream shop back in the day and they gave you that little loyalty card, they'd punch a hole in it every time you went and got an ice cream. And when you got those 10 holes, you got a free cone. And you were like, yes, that's awesome. Well, now they don't have the little card anymore. What they do is they have a, an app and the app sits in, they'll punch the little thing in your app and you want to put your loyalty thing in. Well, now when you do that, you're not just giving them your email address so they can market coupons to you. You're telling them what flavor ice creams you eat, what, when you eat ice cream, when you're not home. Because if you're buying ice cream at the store, you're not at your house. You now have a pattern that they can go ahead and track. And if somebody were to breach that data, they can now tell exactly when you're not going to be home and then go steal stuff from your house if they wanted to. So people need to start associating that every time I give you a piece of my personal data, what am I getting in return? And in this case, I'm getting a free scoop of ice cream, probably not worth it. Now, if you flip to the other side, I'm a, an American Express client and have been for years. They have a lot of data on me. They not only treat it well, um, they do a lot of good things with it that help me. Um, and I feel like they've got a good handle on their security posture. And therefore, I'm willing to share more stuff with them because I get more value from that by them having more information on me. So people need to understand that every time they're giving up their data, it's a currency and they should say, is it worth what I'm getting in return? And people are starting to wake up to it. That's why we've got the, the regulations that we talked about earlier happening everywhere, but they haven't really had that binary, is this worth $5 of personal data or 5,000? Because they're not connecting the dots back to the ice cream store, which is a real example. Do you really want the person at the ice cream store to know when you're not home? Right, right. 
You know, one of the things we often talk about this show is building a cybersecurity culture in an organization and how difficult it really is to do that. It takes an enormous amount of effort and an enormous amount of time. What does it take to build a privacy-first culture in an organization? That goes back to what we were talking about before. Um, it's, it's recognizing that data privacy is personal privacy. Most people respect personal privacy um, and, and just natively, and, but they don't equate it to the data is the same thing. So I think if you can start that at an executive level and have conversations at an executive level about that importance, then it just starts cascading into the things that you do. Let me give you a, a good example here in terms of paying the price for working for a privacy company. Um, there's a person, and we shall call him Alan, because that is his name. Um, <laughs> and Alan is legendary around the office for if you leave your machine on without a screen-protected password on it, he will be the first person, I don't know how he does it, he will sneak into your office if you're gone for two seconds and he will make sure in some very annoying or very public fashion to know you weren't treating your machine with a certain level of security that you should so you weren't protecting privacy. One of our, uh, we talk about protecting what matters, that's our, our, our core of who we are, but we also advocate for privacy as one of our core values. And he takes that personally and you gotta make sure that that value pervades into the actions that you see every single day. So for example, we were talking about Zoom, as soon as Zoom started having their problems, we stopped using it corporately. We immediately shifted to Teams, not because I said so, but because the entire company was like, then we're not doing that because we're not going to be associated with people that don't value privacy that would build a product out the gates that puts shortcuts in it in, in, in the terms of ease of use and compromising privacy in the same standpoint. So once it becomes part of the fabric, then everybody is keeping everybody else accountable, but it's got to start from the top down. All right, Kevin, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest, the president and CEO of Spirion, Mr. Kevin Coppins. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. But it can bankrupt your company. It's internal risk. Insider fraud, ethics violations, and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis. Don't be one of them. The corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. 
in business. Staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the president and CEO of Spirion. Mr. Kevin Coppin. So, Kevin, we're talking about leadership before a little bit. We're talking about the uh, executive uh, leadership teams. What's the difference between a CEO that establishes a successful company culture and one that fails to? Uh, Two things. Um, One, we talked about this with privacy cultures is, of course, you got to walk the talk and you got to be authentic. Um, Just sitting there and, and Printing visions on the wall and, and, and saying saying all the right stuff is meaningless if you're not doing the right stuff. And, and part of that comes from having core values that are, are not just legit, um, but they're, they represent the fabric of your company. One of the things I learned um, a while ago and has been great here at Spirion is you don't, you don't go off into an ivory tower and come up with core values. You discover them in the sense that you find four or five of the people in your organization that really make your organization who they are. And if you had a hundred of them that you'd be working at the greatest place and you'd be printing diamonds as big as coconuts and things would be grand. Who are those people? And then you dissect them in terms of what are the attributes of those individuals that make them who they are. And that distillation process then becomes what your core values are. And I think if you can dig into the the DNA of, of the best people that you have, tie that into your core values and then live those out as a leader, then it sticks. It's when it becomes something fake and not authentic is when things start falling apart. So can you give us an example? Like what's a specific lesson that you've had to learn the hard way about developing a culture and leading as a CEO of a company whose mission it is to protect what matters the most in the digital world as people's data? Well, we talked about Alan earlier. (laughs) And since, uh, since I do walk the talk, I become a target for everybody on my team to make uh, sure that I'm 
but I'm living up to everything. So um, Alan has sent some emails out from my machine when I've walked away for 12 seconds that uh, are somewhat regretful. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> got it. Got it. So you, you've had a front row seat to the impact of COVID-19 on data security and compliance. Uh, you're seeing everything that's going on out there in the wild. You know, what have you learned? I think people, it's interesting. I, I, I think there's a level of overconfidence in, we got people working from home and they're being productive. And, and that's what I constantly hear. Well, people are being more productive and everything's fine and we, we've got it covered and they've got VPNs. And I don't think people are taking a step back and saying, you know what, I, I used to have five locations, now I have 1,500. And if I think that everybody's working just on their work machine and following all the proper protocols that they would, or they're just not. They can't. They've got two kids that are going to school they're trying to teach at the same time. There's just a lot of things going on. So I think overconfidence is one of the biggest challenges because I've protected the device, but am I really protecting the data? And do I really know where the data is moving that is the target that people would be seeking? So to me, it's been overconfidence. And then from a, from a work productivity standpoint with COVID-19 and, and back to your, your culture standpoint, I think meeting people where they're at, I think there's also been this overarching spiel that, well, I used to work for, you know, eight hours a day and have all this commute. And now I can go ahead and put all that time into work. And I think that is valid for some people, but there's other people who don't have a home office that are working from the same kitchen table that their kids are going to virtual school on. Um, that used to have, uh, they have two people working, now they're working sitting across from each other, maybe in the same business, maybe in very different businesses. So I think in some households, there's a lot of chaos that's going on that has greatly impacted productivity the wrong way. And I also think now that we're in month 647 of this virus, best I can tell, uh, people are getting burnt out. Um, so I, I think there's some platitudes that go around data security and there's some platitudes that go around productivity that I think when you dig into actual people and behaviors, that it's important to understand what's going on. You know, it's interesting that a lot of these people that are, you know, maybe there's a couple that lives in New York City in two different companies working at the same kitchen table with a 500 square foot apartment, in, you know, in, in, in New York. And uh, that, that's got to be hard. That's got to be really, I guess that's why 500,000 people have left New York City um, since this whole thing went down. But Well, George, think, think about that with, with privacy too, right? So let's, let's say I'm a, uh, a customer service rep for a muffler repair shop and I'm taking credit cards over the phone. Can you repeat that again, please? And I'm sitting right across from a coworker because we're roommates in New York City in that 500 square foot apartment. You know, it's just things that wouldn't happen that are, that are happening. Or you've got, I did actually hear a real case study of, of five similar people, young guns that were now living in the same house and they all worked for different uh, big four firms one for PwC, one for Accenture, and now they're handling client-sensitive data for competitors, and they're all in the same place. Those things don't happen when you're working from an office. So um, definitely something, I think it's really important that people scrape through the platitudes and really think about their people, how they're working, and how they can help them not just be um, secure and, and manage privacy, but also help with productivity. Just kind of glossing over it and saying everything is awesome. I just don't think it's true for everybody. You mentioned that people are getting burnt out. What, what do you mean by that? You mean that they're just, instead of going out and commuting and doing other things, that they're just working all the time because they're quarantined in their house and they're, and they're getting burnt out from doing that? That's part of it. I actually uh, I saw a great meme a couple months ago uh, from the, the Sixth Sense. 
you know, the, the kid that says, I see dead people. And it says, uh, after <laughs> three months of COVID, I see flat people. <laughs> so you get tired of staring at a screen all the time and, yeah. and you, you miss the interaction of actual real human beings. We, I mean, it's interesting. You think about all the stories that have been written and shared and on TV about our kids and how our kids are the screen generation and they don't know how to interact socially anymore. Well, we got six months of screen and we're getting burnt out on it. So I, I do think people are craving that human interaction, even if it's getting on a plane. I was, I was talking to a, a woman earlier today and she said she saw a commuter train go by and she was, you know, had a tear in her eye just to see commuter trains moving again. So I think, I think people miss it and they're getting burnt out of, of the same old, same old every day. Yeah. I think the same thing every single day, uh, no matter what it is really can be just really monotonous. Right. Yeah, what, um, I mean, a question. What day is today? And you got to think about it. And I got a, a guy I work with that says, every day is Blur's Day, Kevin. Yesterday was Blur's Day. <laughs> tomorrow's Blur's Day. And today is Blur's Day. It says so right on my calendar. When you said that, I actually had to think about it. Exactly. I exactly. really did. When you said that, I was like, thought you were asking me a question. I'm like, well, wait a minute. What day is it? Uh, that, that, is, that is true. That is very, very true. What, what are companies missing about the challenges of data security and, and remote, work, remote working? I mean, you know, how is the data really uh, being exfiltrated from these companies, from these work from home situations? You know what the, the biggest concern I hear is, which surprises me and it shouldn't. And because we get asked the question as a, as a vendor that sells into it is, can you stop people from printing sensitive data at home? Biggest concern is printers. Yeah, yeah. That's how that's how they see it leaving their system, and it's interesting to think is that's the only way that it's going to get out of their system. <laughs> right. I have right. an iPhone and I have a monitor with all this data on it. I don't need a printer to extract it. That's true. I mean, it's difficult. I mean, you know, there's so many different ways. I guess you can do it. I mean, uh, you know, mitigating, you know, loading printer drivers and you know, eliminating admin access, and there's all kinds of things that you should do. I think in terms of you know, cybersecurity hygiene when it comes to DLP, but how can, how can, what can companies do to better safeguard their remote workforce and flatten the curve? Uh, flatten the, flatten which curve, George, the data curve or the actual true COVID curve? Well, the, the data curve really from the data escaping was, you know, I want to talk about data security, right? So, um, it, you know, from the data that's, that's, uh, that's, that's moving out of these companies. Well, it goes back to a question you asked me earlier that was the right question, which is shrinking the sensitive data footprint. So if you don't know what they have, and I'm going to assume that most of your employees don't know what they have on their machines as well, you got to help them understand what they have. You got to help them eliminate things they should not have. So if they've got 2,700 resumes, let me give you a, a, a live example. I was talking to a major sports franchise and I had the CTO on one side and I had the president on the other side. CTO was saying, everything's fantastic. We're in good shape. Here's all the stuff that we've done and went through a litany of really good security things they've done to manage their players and agents and employees. And then it said, great. And as we continued conversations, it came out that the, uh, the, the president had every email that he had ever sent for the last 14 years on his laptop. Hmm. And wow. you could have heard a pin drop because now the CTOs, all this money that they've spent, and this is the person making the trades and doing, you know, in the draft and all yeah. this stuff associated with it. And he did that because that was his archive and that's what he, you know, pulled from and did all the stuff. And he's like, is that a problem? 
<laughs> and the answer is, yeah, it is a problem, but he didn't know it was a problem, right? So he's just doing his job, back to what I said earlier. So it's like, that's a problem. So if you can scan that and say, should you really have this? And if you really need it, let's go ahead and put it in a secure spot and give you access to it. But the best place is probably not your personal laptop. So it's really helping people understand the value of what they have and then helping them secure it in an appropriate way. But you can't do that if you don't know that 14 years of email are all backed up on the laptop. And you can find that um, with a variety of tools that are out there, tools such as ours and others that can help you at least get a handle on what's the risk. Yeah, 14 years of email is huge. Huge. Hopefully their laptop is leaves encrypted. Oh, of course. And that and encryption, we know, solves everything when the laptop gets stolen and turned on. <laughs> as soon as I can get into the laptop with uh, one, two, three, four, five, then I have a different challenge. <laughs> Kevin, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, all the best. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before we do, I remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 